Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the final ACFM of the year. This is producer Matt with a little gift from us to you. If you're listening with children in the room, well done for getting them started early. However, do be aware that around 22 minutes in, Nadia, Keir and Jeremy discuss a big man with a red coat and a fluffy white beard. The information contained within may not be something you want to share with those young ears, so please be aware of that. While I'm here, just a reminder... We've got a rolling playlist featuring all the music discussed on the show. You can find the link for that in the show notes. We have a semi-regular mailing list where we send out bonus bits as and when they come to us. For the dedicated fans in the Navarra Media shop, we have beautiful enamel ACFM pin badges. Stick them on your lapel, stick them on your badge. Show other people out in the open that you too are a follower of ACFM. And... Remember, if you listen through SoundCloud, you will be getting the heroic dose of ACFM. That means more music and audio collages for the full Technicolor 360 trip. However, if you're listening elsewhere, don't worry. You're still getting all of that neat, sweet conversation from Jeremy, Keir and Nadia. Okay, on with the show. This is Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idle, and as usual, I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about gifts. So guys, this is a pretty festive topic. I think this was yours, Kia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you wanted to chat about gifts on the podcast? Uh, Because Christmas is coming up, of course, and I like to receive gifts and grudgingly give them. No, I actually enjoy giving them as well. But, you know, Christmas is a good excuse to talk about gift giving and what it means, because on the surface of it, it, it seems as though giving gifts to people, it sort of seems as though it breaks with the sort of economics and mentality of capitalism. Although, of course, Christmas in particular is this huge uh, extravaganza of consumerism, so there seems to be a contradiction there. There's also lots of interesting theories, uh, anthropological studies about what gifts are, which might help us change our, our minds in it. So it seems like a really interesting topic and obviously timely. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, yeah, well, there's a lot to say about the idea of giving and the idea of the gifts. As Keir said, there's a lot of philosophical investigation, which is sort of proceeded from some of the anthropological studies of gift giving, which are really sort of central to the development of anthropological theory in the 20th century. And they raise all kinds of interesting questions about the nature of exchange and the way, just the idea of gift and giving and the given sort of functions, even in like everyday language, I think is always really interesting to think about. Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in that bit as well, like how it functions in contemporary society. And I guess another thing that will be interesting to think about specifically is having mentioned uh, capitalism, like how the experience of gift giving and gift receiving is different under kind of late, late capitalism. So like, are there particular pressures that are associated, which we know that there are, uh, with giving gifts and whether capitalism has properly co-opted the experience of gift giving at a time like Christmas, where The question for me then is, is it more anxiety inducing than it is pleasurable? 
Um, like, has capitalism also taken that away from us? Or does the experience of this mass gift giving around Christmas actually sit, end up producing an affect that is that sits outside capitalism and what capitalism would like to do about that? So that's some of the interesting reasons why I would like to talk about gifts. I mean, the other way into this is to think about, I oh, will just start with our own sort of gift giving practices. I very much remember a gift of cheese from Jeremy during, during the start of COVID, which I very, very much appreciated. And I reciprocated by uh, the gift of chocolate to both of you, actually, I think, if I remember rightly, some uh, Argentinian chocolates. And yeah, so you can see sort of like, you know, this how gift giving fits into, you know, developing friendships and social bonds and these sorts of things. But of course, the other thing to talk about at the moment is Christmas. And I think it is a, it's an interesting angle, actually, Nadia, the thing you said about, is this pleasurable or anxiety producing? And um, that probably changes depending on how much money you've got and whether you feel poorer um, than the people you're exchanging gifts with, for instance, because that, I imagine, can produce huge amounts of anxiety Obviously, parents having huge amounts of anxiety, but not being able to give their kids the sorts of gifts that ever ever kids are getting, etc. You know, that's this huge, huge reservoir of not just like anxiety, but like anxiety rooted in social shame, which like will will give us get us somewhere. I think towards thinking about what seems like a simple thing, gift giving, is actually quite complicated, embedded in all all sorts of sort of economic and psychological and basically socially produced dynamics, I think. My family's really into Christmas. On my mum's side of the family has been always really, really, really been into Christmas and like, you know, ridiculously into giving gifts. And I think it's because my mum's family was quite poor when she was a kid, when she was young, because my granddad died very early, very young, I mean, and so they didn't have much money but they were quite a big family of five siblings. They were part of a bigger extended family with 13 siblings. My great-grandmother had 13 um, children, so she had many grandchildren and great-grandchildren, etc. And so there was this quite this weird, complex web of family relationships that my mum and dad had to sort of navigate in, in terms of gift-giving. But the, the, the long and the short of it was that that whole side of the family was really into gift-giving, when they were younger, like homemade gifts to to a large extent because they didn't have that much money. Um, compared to my dad's side of the family where Christmas wasn't such a big, big thing. A new year was a slightly bigger thing because there were some some Scot- Scot- Scottish parts of that family. Does that resonate with either of you two? I, I come from, I guess, a quite a, a generous but not not particularly occasional, occasion-based gift-giving family. So um, yeah, I don't come from a, a Christmas celebrating family. I didn't grow up in a in a Christian culture, and I'm not sure that my family is particularly typical of of Egypt in any way. I guess we're quite a secular family in a way. We're probably quite an anti-ritual family more than other people, I guess. So in terms of gift giving, when I was a child, I do remember specifically for for Eid. Uh, for the first aid, for the small aid, getting crisp notes, which is a thing that you get money, but you get new money. And maybe that's there's something there which I haven't done enough research on about like it not being a hand-me-down or not being money that has been used by other people. So you get these crisp notes. Now they might only be like one pound or two pounds or whatever, but it was quite underplayed in my 
family um, anyway. So I have nothing like your experience, Kier, of like the occasion where everybody exchanges presents. I certainly don't have that with Christmas. I do now, I guess, because I live in the UK and I love Christmas and I love giving gifts. Um, I have to say more than receiving them. Oh, what, how great, because I, I enjoy receiving them. <laughs> this is a magical circle. Well, this Between is us, we lick the plate clean. <laughs> You're not the first person to, to react in that sort of way um, when I said this, but I think it's because there is also a superstition thing, which I definitely grew up with, which is that if something good happens to you, it's your job to share it round. So I feel better. I guess that tugs on like something that I was brought up with, that if, if, if something good happens or if I want good to continue to happen to me, I have to give things away. Um, having said that, though, like I love token gifts and I do love it when somebody gives me something which I feel is very specific to me. So if somebody gives me something and I think, wow, you've really thought about that, then I find that really moving. And I like to do the same. I just find the pressure of, oh, I have to think about these things for these people around Christmas. I find that quite stressful. I much prefer going about the year. And then if I see something, I think, oh, this person would really like that. I've been through other other waves of that where you just you sort of build up these these people who buy you Christmas presents so you have to buy them back and that sort of obligation thing that goes on and that really does cut against this what you were saying Nadia the sort of like personalized present the sort of like like the ideal present is to buy somebody something that they didn't actually think that they wanted and then they realized they did want it if you're buying presents on an industrial scale, that doesn't happen. It becomes much more of a sort of calculated, is this roughly in the right um, amount of money to spend on this person? Is it too much or is it too little? That's sort of what you, what you fall into when you've got this huge web of people that you have to you have to reciprocate to. So already we're building up this sort of picture of gift giving with words such as reciprocation and obligation and, and that sort of stuff, which basically sullies the the more pure idea of a gift, which I think you capture, Nadia, with this idea that, you know, what you're trying to think is, think of, you're trying to get something which really, really suits that person. And of course, you can do that through the year if you haven't got like 50, 34, 50 people to sort of buy presents for it. Well, the first track we should definitely play is uh, The Gift by The Velvet Underground, which is a very unusual sort of spoken word track from White Light, White Heat, their second album, their most, probably their most experimental album. And I've always liked the idea of sort of instrumental rock with spoken word over it. I think it's an entire genre of music that could have happened and didn't. Uh, and the gift is a pretty e exemplary. Uh, you've really got to listen to the whole thing because the whole thing it's basically a short story involving a, a, something strange being sent in the mail, and it's not very Christmassy. <laughs> but there you go, the gift of Velvet Underground, 1968. Waldo Jeffers had reached his limit. It was now mid-August, which meant he had been separated from Marsha for more than two months. Two months all he had to show were three dog-eared letters and two very expensive long-distance phone calls. True when school had ended and she'd returned to Wisconsin, to Locust, Pennsylvania, she had sworn to maintain a certain fidelity. She would date occasionally, but merely as amusement. Can I just ask another question to you guys about whether there is a specificity around, like if there's a different 
um, culture in your families around the gift necessarily being a thing as opposed to an experience or something to eat? No, I don't think so. I don't think that I don't think those things are necessarily devalued. Right. Okay. The permanent status of the object doesn't have any particular. People often get each other nice things to eat. They wouldn't get each other. They they wouldn't get normally. I think if anything, that's like, you know, it's a way of signifying that you're sort of indulgent. You know, it's it's a way of signifying to the other person that you want them to just have some sort of pure enjoyment rather than utility out of it. Arguably, that is part of the ideal of the gift that it should be something that generates pure enjoyment rather than necessarily having utility i know that's the case that's certainly like my kids have this quite demarcated attitude that if it's a utilitarian object like a bike or something then they shouldn't that shouldn't be a christmas present that should be something they just get anyway and it's partly because they're spoiled like middle class kids (laughs) (laughs) but within that economy yeah there is there's a sort of demarcation between utility and luxury i think this is partly why the socks as a gift have this kind of comedic status in the culture because they're just because they're just um you know they're the most utilitarian imaginable thing but then of course there's also a set of like comedy tragedy sort of cultural moments or like in media around the husband giving the wife something super utilitarian like a hoover or a new iron which and that obviously has is something that you laugh about because of the gender bias that is associated with Is that with not it. acceptable? What have you got? <laughs> I'm just going to go through my return policy on this. I am, of course, only joking. I haven't bought Alice a new... The new Dyson's really good, though. I'd be quite happy with, I'd be quite happy with one of those. <laughs> when you're an adult, you know, uh, if you've got, you know, not loads of money, but uh, enough money, you tend to buy you know stuff that you want you know what i mean so then you're trying to and especially when you, you when you've been in a relationship with somebody for a long long time and you've bought gifts for them for several decades you know you're stuck on this thing of like well they got everything i would buy them normally so yeah. what you get them i got me and alice got into this cycle of buying each other experiences to go back to that question nadia uh, in fact I, actually it was may bought me um absorbing experience absorbing is when you get strapped into a giant plastic ball and roll down a hill it's excellent i would love that <laughs> if anybody wants to buy it <laughs> that's well, amazing absorbing experience was horrific yeah, i can imagine it sounds bad because may got it she was want to like trap you, you strap yourself to a giant ball and roll down a hill well it was it was me and may getting strapped into a giant ball were you in the same ball in the same ball in the same ball or outside the ball? inside inside no, outside would be suicidal he, I was imagining he like <laughs> outside the ball like, well there's like two a, with like a crash why it's pissing it down with rain well there are two versions because one version is you you're not strapped in inside the ball but there's lots of water so the ball rolls around but you sort of stay at the middle in the bottom but well, the, like the, you're in the amniotic fluid of the womb basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. i've not tried that rebirthing like experience. a float yeah. a flotation a float a flotation a, a flotation at tank a, float that's at a, a 45 experience. degree angle yeah <laughs> a, yeah exactly a, a flotation tank traveling down a hill at a, a many miles an hour this one more was what me and Mary to get strapped in and she was quite young and so she totally bottled it and i had to persuade her in and as soon as it got, it was really violent, incredibly violent, because you're thrown against your straps, you know, all the time, every rotation. 
So May was screaming and crying her eyes out. It was was one of those gifts which seems like a good idea. But you didn't forget (laughs) it. No, I... No, no, no. Amazing. Me and my therapist, yes. No, no. Okay, let's go back to the the improving gift for for a minute, though, because I think you said something really interesting, Jeremy. And I was wondering whether the improving gift also could not be understood in a... Um, you know, patronizing way by the receiver, if there's a kind of relationship of mentorship. So if you are like the older sibling, or if you are, you know, maybe, I don't know, like somebody that you have a relationship of like learning and teaching from, and they give you, you know, a book or a text or an experience or something, and they think that this, you know, this is going to be good for you. I'd imagine that there are situations where that is seen as like, oh, that's lovely. Whereas in other situations, be like, what are you saying, basically? depending on the relationship, are you saying that, you know, I'm ignorant or I need to learn, etc.? That will depend on the relationship, I, I'd imagine. Like, what do you think about that? Surely the best sorts of improving get- gifts are when you want to improve somebody in the direction of your own interests. And if it's just lying about the house, well, you may as well use it as well. But, but, but isn't that like every single socialist is, who's going to give someone the, you know, the communist manifesto or something for, for Christmas and be like, read this? Yeah. Just like in, my, in my example, it would be the new, the new um, uh, comic version of the, <laughs> the, the new graphic novel of of, of um, Capital or something like that, which um, I'd quite like to read. But um, you know, now I can get it as a gift for somebody else and read it on the on the sly. We said we'd play some Christmas songs on this episode. And my one contribution to our Christmas song list is Lee Scratch Perry. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Lee Scratch Perry, the great genius of Jamaican dub. And to my knowledge, this is his one Christmas song. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. The thing that is obviously a feature, a really weird feature of Christmas giving culture, like in contemporary Western culture, is this whole mythology, this whole kind of live action role playing game of Santa Claus. The idea of Santa as the person who brings the presents for kids. And I think it's amazing how ubiquitous it is. I don't know. Did you do did you do that here when May was little? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we left out a, a, a mince pie for Santa and a little bit of carrot yeah, for yeah. Rudolph. Yeah, everyone does that. To, we had to bite, <laughs> take a bite out of the mince pie and a bite out of the carrot. Yeah, did you? I just had yeah. to eat them both. I think, I think we had to leave does, a little Does Santa bit. not eat a whole mince pie? Well, he's got a lot of mince pies to get through. <laughs> That's, but by the time they're old it's enough... Like wine tasting. By the time they're old enough for that to be an issue, that it's like... It, the curtain is closing on them but it's just it's just great like i'm i was i was incredibly surprised i know that people exist who don't do it on sort of good secular humanist rationalist grounds but i didn't i haven't met any in my own life like i knew when i was a kid 
I sort of knew people who knew people in which they didn't do Santa in their family. And it was associated with being like a radical atheist or, you know, maybe a communist or something. But I, my own growing up, my own like raising of kids, like I haven't met anyone who doesn't do it. It's, it's kind of incredible. I don't remember when it, when when May was young. I used to have this thing where I try to answer her questions as fully as I could, <laughs> um, uh, and, and so like you know, lying to her was quite a rare experience. And then uh, like Santa was this noticeable thing where you would where it was social convention to to produce this this lie, which would gradually be revealed. Like you basically, when the child sort of starts to suspect Santa doesn't exist, they were not meant to. They went to play along and not not yeah. reveal that. Basically, it's, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Well, it's it a is. game. I think the thing is, I, my mm. conceptual isolation of it is it's a game. Like, if you just think of it as a lie, then it becomes quite sinister. Okay, but, it, yeah. but I think it's a game. It's just a LARP. We're LARPing. <laughs> it's a game, but it is a game that the child doesn't know is a game at a certain, until yeah. a certain age. And But why is it? Like, why this compulsion to attribute the giving of the gifts to this mythological figure? Because I think it's important to externalize the responsibility of whether you've been good or you haven't been good to someone who is not the parent in the household. Oh, yeah, so it's the, it's the externalized superego. But that, is. but that idea that the, the idea of like the child being punished for bad behavior by not receiving gifts, I'm just not sure that that again, like everybody knows that doesn't really happen. Hmm. I'm sure it does somewhere though. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, maybe it did at one time, but but I but I'm not sure. I think the idea that it did at one time might be part of the mythology. I don't know. But maybe it's at least a way of you know getting the the child to fall in line with yeah. all the things you want it yeah. to do for the whole of December at the very yeah. least, yeah. because the child wants to receive the gifts. It does have a yeah. It has that sort of disciplinary function. It's true. It's a good point, and it is one yeah. of those. I have to say, as a parent, it is one of those. Not growing up with a, that any sort of theistical mythology at all to kind of as a way of framing like the reasons for good behavior and a way for thinking about good behavior and sort of selfless behavior it's quite it is itself quite, it is quite challenging I also think though that part of what why parents do it to take us back to a recent um episode of ACFM is um you know to create a little little sense of an enchanted world to try and keep yeah. this sort of like enchanted enchanted element of 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 the year. No, it is also that it's it, it's 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 not wanting to acknowledge that what's going on is intensified commodity exchange. <laughs> yeah, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. wanting. That's it's, not what you said to May when she asked the question. <laughs> Did she? No, that would, May, that would have been what I. Intensified commodify. <laughs> Well, about most other things, I probably would have said that, <laughs> but, but I, you know, Santa for some reason, I I, I wanted to, to go along with. Is it because you look well dapper in a in a Santa outfit? Well, we, the tradition of our in our family was always that there'd be loads of presents under the tree, and then whoever was giving out the presents would put a Santa hat on. <laughs> the other, no, the other Santa tradition was that we'd have to wait until the kids were asleep and then sneaking take their empty stockings and replace them with the full ones and like all the adults get stockings everyone does that you, you're always you keep saying we did this stuff we did this stuff and it's what, like it's it, i just it's the there may be people i'm sure there's lots of variations on that practice but every family i've known that's what they did well my, what's my most what some of my most distinct childhood memories are waking up on, on christmas morning and then going and feeling around to see if the stocking was full or not so i might wake up at like 
half, half past 11 at night and the stocking's still empty. And as soon as the stocking's full, it's like the, the excitement gets... Um, wow, okay, really that's intense. intense, right. Anyway, we're getting into we're getting into granular Christmas, and I think one day we're going to do. <laughs> no, but I'm getting excited. I, know. <laughs> I think one day we're going to do an episode about just Christmas. So I'll probably save my funny Santa stories for that. Yeah, so Santa. So we're talking about Santa and why, like, the function of yeah, Santa. Yeah, well, well, exactly. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? If you think about this in terms of commodity fetishism, I mean, the basic Marxian analysis of commodity fetishism is that it's the process by which commodities themselves, the objects themselves, come to take on a kind of magical quality in the imagination of the, of the consumer in a capitalist society, and it, the capitalist consumer is distracted from the fact that in fact those commodities are still the product of social relations and social activity and labour as they would have been in a pre-capitalist society. And in some sense, the mythology of, of Santa and his elves and his workshop, like bringing the, the objects personally, it's a sort of phantasmatic deconstruction or a sort of treatment for commodity fetishism. Like it's a mythicized de-fetishization de of the commodities because it, 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 it involves a whole story about where the stuff comes from rather than the stuff just to, coming from Amazon or coming from the shop or something. And it sort of hu mythologically humanizes the process of making the stuff and bringing the stuff. So there is something going on there and I think it relates to something I've said uh, lots of times before I think I've said it on the show before probably that within Anglo-Saxon culture like one of the points of resistance to the complete subsumption of the culture by capitalism is even on the part of people on the political right even on the people of pe on the part of people who are conservative or quite neoliberal is this just intuitive sense that you have to protect children from capitalism and capitalist social relations if they're if they're just fully exposed to it and unprotected from it and they're not trained ethically to operate according to different norms like before they become fully exposed to it then they'll just become totally psychotic and i think there is something going on there with the santa as a sort of myth which serves to that tries to at an imaginative level it tries to protect children from the kind of brutal anonymity of capitalist commodity exchange and, you know, a similar interesting thing that's come to mind when you were saying that, Jeremy, is also the use of Santa's workshop as a kind of image by workers' rights campaigners as well. Because for the same reason, because Santa and the elves and the workshop is actually something that you can imagine where the elves are actually making the gifts, that's usually used as a metaphor for, you know, like the importance of workers' rights and what happens if the elves go on strike, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I also wonder, I mean, sometimes I suspect that there's something is, as well with Santa there about the fact that the excessive generosity that's displayed at Christmas, the excessive giving at Christmas also has to be depersonalized or has to be displaced onto another figure. Because, I mean, one of the things I wanted to think about today is you know, I've had a, a bit of a thing ever since I was a kid about, about the fact that I think... Anglo-Saxon capitalist Protestant culture in particular and sort of middle class sort of petty bourgeois culture historically is, is historically very unusual for being a, a culture within which generosity is generally frowned upon. I mean, most cultures, like at every level of society, from, from the beginning of like human society that we know of, have just it's naturally assumed that being generous and hospitable towards others, whoever they are, is obviously an ethical good and is a moral good and is something that should be encouraged. And, you know, one of the features of 
capitalist Protestant culture since the 17th century is this idea that actually, you know, frugality, like looking after your own, harboring your resources, like sp- nurturing your investments, that's the good thing. And so you can't, to some extent, you know, the bourgeois parent who's giving loads of gifts like to their kid for no other reason than they're nice things to have is sort of breaking with those norms. And I think it's probably significant that Santa really emerges as, as a cultural myth precisely in the period between the wars really which is precisely the moment historically when the modern consumer economy is emerging out of the previous iteration of industrial capitalism where in which most people had to practice austerity because it was forced upon them by low wages and expensive consumer goods and you're moving into a society in which actually it's going to be more and more the case that the society can own the can only keep going if people buy more and more stuff and if people at most levels of society buy more and more stuff and so there's this tension between this historic austerity preached by everybody from the puritans to the victorian moralists and this new world in which actually everybody has to buy stuff and capitalism needs us to buy stuff to some extent the fantasy of santa i think is like resolving that tension or it's a way of containing that that tension i mean the other way to look at that which you might have been arguing slightly as well i think is um you know, that world, that sort of like that ascetic um, um, Protestant world without like gift giving, without love, basically, without solidarity. It's just basically not a world that people want to live in. So, you know, basically capitalism has to colonize these 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 things that people won't knuckle down to. Basically, right? they want to do gift giving. They want to ha- they want to ha- feel themselves within a this web of social bonds, et cetera, et cetera. And that's also related to, you know, the, the the Protestant thing about earning and what gifting is supposed to be is is you're not earning this. This is not yes, something that yes, you've earned. Yes. No, exactly, right? yes. And that's why it's really that's why it's it sits I think that's right to frame it as outside. Yeah, but the idea of Santa rewarding the good children makes it something yeah. they've earned. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes oh, it yeah, something actually. they've earned. Mm. Mm. You should have really harshed my Christmas buzz now. You've ruined it. <laughs> my favourite Christmas song is Feliz Navidad by Elvez. So Elvez is a Mexican-American well, version of Elvis, basically, Elvez. Feliz Navidad. You should check him out. He he's got great politics. The other thing we could play is Feliz Navidad, which is a, a mashup of Feliz Navidad by Elvez and a song by Pill. We have been talking quite a lot about Christmas, actually. We should talk about other occasions when we give gifts and perhaps uh, in sort of non-Christian cultures, other occasions in which we give gifts because obviously there's birthday gifts, but like there's wedding gifts as well. I presume those are sort of with the idea that you want to help help people start off in life. Or is it a, do you give the, the wedding gift and in reciprocation you get the wedding meal? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I mean, the wedding gift is like the most formalized and institutionalized form of gift giving today, isn't it? You, people have those lists and you just go to the shop and I'm sure that everybody listening to ACFM is going to be just shocked to hear me, like Jeremy Gilbert, say, I find the wedding industry kind of distasteful. <laughs> so, but like, the, it just... On that it bombshell. Seems, <laughs> <laughs> it seems kind of... Um, yeah, it is. Well, it is that, isn't it? It's this. Inst- it is this sort of historically is this idea that, that you give the new couple, the penniless new couple, stuff to start their home. But it's become completely bizarre because the middle cl- the middle class norm has become you only get married when you, you've got loads of money, so you can afford you can afford the house and the mortgage and stuff. So it seems completely gratuitous that the people are then expecting people to buy them like a blender and a TV and stuff. But it depends on who is supposed to front up the cash to make the marriage happen in the first place. Because, I mean, I'm not sure how it works in, in the UK, but I, actually I don't know anything about this, you guys can tell me. But like, isn't it like the, the parents of the bride or the groom that kind of pays for the entire wedding or then pays for getting all of the stuff? And if they can't, if they can't in the modern day, then it's pushed down to the guests effectively, right? That's what's happened. Yeah, I think that's true, yeah. Some sort of socialised dowry, I like it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's another thing anthropologists talk about, isn't it? There are cultures where almost all cultures have some norm around one around the parents of one or the other of the the heterosexual marrying couple giving a, a large donation to somebody. But in, in, one, in one set of traditions, it's the dowry. It's the parents of the, the woman who have to cough up the money in some form and then in others it's the bride price it's the parents of the groom have to basically buy the buy the bride from her family exactly so you know it's all in a lot of cases it's all an extension of you know the woman being the object that is exchanged right and what's related to that yes yeah it's true but it's not just occasions that are let's go let's go back and talk about some of the other kind of cyclical events because christmas is a cyclical event like it's just something that comes every year round right and like so so is eid so eid is the same is the same and the big eid there's two eids the 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 big the first eid is kind of the in my experience in egypt at least the crisp banknotes and new clothes for the kids eid but then there's the second eid which involves giving away like a 2.5% of all of your wealth every year. Uh, very um, uh, mathematical. Zakat. 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 Yeah, Zakat or Zakat yeah. or, or whatever, which is like a very, again, like a very specified thing. And that comes round like every year and it has a, uh, a certain social function. And then there are the kind of so-called one in a lifetime events, like kind of weddings. And then there are the birthdays, which are also, you know, come around every year. But I would, I would assume that with most people, birthdays matter more when you're younger, maybe not in Keir's family, but like, or whether birthdays matter at all, they don't really that much in the Middle East compared to other places, unless you've been westernized. But what sorts of events or what sorts of moments, maybe things like, you know, graduation or like marking moments in your life when you might receive gifts? Also, why you might get having a baby, stuff like that. Well, again, there's an int- I guess there's an interesting distinction between those ones like the baby shower or the wedding gift, which are some sort of inheritance from even pre-capitalist societies, where people would the the community had to make some material provision for the family. 
And then there's others that are just complete inventions. The best one is like Father's Day. Father's Day is just completely invented by Hallmark cards in the United States in the 20th century. It's absolutely thank God for that. I think. more socks, <laughs> socks twice a year. No, well, I do. I think it's kind of well. It's funny. Well, I do. Like I've tried to protest against it. Like I just don't. I'm not. I get enough presents in the year. Like I don't feel any need for it. But the kids love it. The kids sort of love the sense of occasion, and also it doesn't. It's interesting because it does. For there, for there to be a Mother's Day, not a Father's Day, for the, to the kids, doesn't seem to fit at all with the whole kind of liberal, feminist, egalitarian norms of their culture. So it, so it would, so it seems to them really natural. So I guess I still have a really a sort of residual memory of the sense that you know the mother as the housewife had to be like specifically rewarded for her <laughs> for her perpetual subjugation exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, um, her dad didn't really seem to need that i mean the other thing that goes along with all of this so baby shower made me think of this is is the tradition of of gifting your baby clothes passing your baby clothes on to to people who've got younger children you know, it makes sense because you you basically because they're grown at such a rate that you know they they the clothes aren't used enough. Basically, they're not worn through or anything like that. But like under underneath all of this calendar or event based giving gift giving is the more everyday practice of gifting either time, attention, or perhaps money, etc. You know, with the expectation that you that that will be reciprocated in a in a time of need or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And then that that helps you get at this idea of gifts as something through which bonds of solidarity are, are sort of formed, even like bonds of social security. You'd probably put it that way, perhaps. Yeah, let's come back to that idea about gift giving as as, as forming bonds of solidarity, uh, and talk about the sort of more mystifying, mystificatory aspects of gift giving, perhaps, or more enchanted, depending how you look at it. Ah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like this idea. We've started using concepts around enchantment more since we we talked about it, and I like it. I think it works as a frame, as opposed to like as opposed to magic, like not magic. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, Christmas. The whole function of Christmas is just to deliberately, collectively enchant what would otherwise be the shittest time of the year. And I like that. That's the great thing about it. Is we've all we've all agreed we're going to participate in this set of rituals and practices, which are going to make what would otherwise be the shittest few weeks of the year like really really fun. I find a lot of these practices confusing in the UK. Like even though I've been here for twenty years, I think it's more me than it is kind of my cultural indoctrination. But I don't feel necessarily responsible to return a gift if someone gave me one. But I think that's a personality thing mostly. But if I was invited round to somebody's house and it involved food, that is where I would feel I should bring something with me. There's a common phraseology around that in Arabic, like you can't go in with empty hands is a thing if you're invited for dinner. But what I also wanted to talk about is a little bit about where the gift sits in terms of superstition and how that works, perhaps works, around a form of redistribution. So definitely in Egypt and possibly in other places in the Middle East, if something good happens to you, then you should give gifts. So 
an example of this, which would be most starkly different to the UK, is that if you if you pass your exams or you've got the new job or the good thing has happened to you, then you're buying the round. Whereas it's the opposite here in the UK. So if something good happens to you, people will buy you around. <laughs> and the way I think it works in definitely in Egyptian culture and a lot of Middle Eastern culture, is that if something happens to you, you want to keep the evil eye away from you because people might be jealous of you because the good thing has happened to you. Therefore, you immediately need to give part of that goodness away. So the gift there fulfills a function of redistribution to keep away the jealousy that might give you a hard time in your new role or in your new future because that is socially seen as like a really difficult thing that you have to get rid of you have to move the jealousy away does that make sense yeah yeah i was just about to say that um that you know the the, the point about um if, if you're the one that that something good happens to you, you're supposed to buy the gifts that it's it sort if you come into money i think you like what would not what would quite often be said perhaps half jokingly oh great next round's on you sort of thing which made me think about the tradition of buying rounds in pubs, et cetera, where you, everybody who sat around a particular table or you've gone out with, you know, you'll take it in turns to buy drinks for everybody. That can be a sort of ruinous sort of gift giving because depends how big the party is. You might have to stay for like 10 rounds of drinks or something if there's a big party and you want everything to be equitable yeah, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, but so like, yeah, there are like those just little sort of traditions or, or practices such as buying a round of drinks which is about like basically it's not gift given exactly, but it definitely is in that, you know, it, it is expected to be reciprocated, although it is actually acceptable to say, oh, thanks. I've had nine beers now. I'm not going to have ten. <laughs> if you can even speak. Yeah. <laughs> but but even so, just to finish on that, so, okay, maybe take it away from the round. So don't think about it as like the round, because you're right. The round is a very specific thing, which which fulfills also, it's about social control and about drinking and the role of drinking as well. Uh, and everyone kind of going down together or going up together, which which I think we could even do a whole episode on on itself. But but it's the idea that you're buying the drinks. You you are the one who is putting money into the thing now because something happened to you, and the expectation being on you because the good thing has happened to you. That doesn't exist in Western culture in the same way that it does in the Middle East. So it could be something like the idea of buying holiday gifts, etc. So if you've been on holiday, you'll buy a little trinket to bring back, mm. particularly like of a parent or kids, you know, you buy something or you've gone away, you know, I'll bring something back sort of. Okay, absolutely one of my favourite songs, I think, ever, because this is one my kids loved when they were really little, is Fox the Fox, Dutch electro-pop group from the, in the, from the early 80s, and this is their the one big hit I know of, Precious Little Diamond. I think we should play the Shep Pettibone mix, because that's my favourite. Precious Little Diamond, I give it all to you, is the lyric. There's some contention over what it means, but the, the song addresses the listener as a precious little diamond, so... I always thought of my kids when I played it. I still do.
What about the refusal of gifts? Refusing gifts. What are the contexts that you can refuse a gift? I mean, definitely there is, there's a, culturally a lot of this around mock refusal. So you're supposed to pretend to refuse stuff and it's seen as rude if you don't at least refuse in the, the culturally appropriate amounts of times. So that definitely, there's cultural stuff around that in the, in, in the Middle East. You really, really need to push and say, no, you shouldn't have. I can't accept this from you several times before you accept it. Well, I mean, it, it's a dangerous game, though, because so Alice and her best friend Lou, when that they they get caught in this round, this cycle of I'm paying for this. Oh, don't you dare! Don't you dare! I'm going to pay for this. No, I'm paying for yeah, this. That's, all, that's thinking, also a Larry David stick, isn't it? Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have to live through it quite often. It goes on and on and on until somebody cracks. Basically, and this I don't know quite what's going well, on. Well, that's that, actually but. that sounds very Middle Eastern. And also how it is, I think, in some Far Eastern countries where it's it's really the idea of splitting the bill. I mean, this is a slightly different topic, but the idea of splitting the bill is unthinkable. It's it's incredibly weird. And one person is going to pay. And so you fight over who's going to pay rather than who's yeah. not going to pay. That is quite a common thing. Yeah, so that so the thing is, oh well, look, you paid for it last time, so it's my turn now. That's a sort of that reciprocation type of affair that that does happen around, like paying for meals and so forth. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in, it is interesting. I, I think I know in my own experience when I was when I was in my twenties and thirties, I did very much like you know picking up the check, as the Americans say, for dinner for people and and. Um, you know, buying rounds and whatever and I, I think uh, and these days I don't I'm just less bothered about it like I'm happy to pay I'm happy to do it and I'm happy for other people to pay and I'm happy to share and I think I think for me it was partly just about associating it with adulthood it's about associating it with adulthood now, I think there is something to that in those stronger traditions of people wanting to be the be the one who pays for dinner definitely it's, it's about occupying the position of the symbolic position of patriarchal authority yeah yeah, because it's the job, because it's the dad, the symbolic dad, whether whether it's actually literally a male parent or just a person who symbolically occupies that position of the daddy. You know, their job is to provide. Their job is to to be the person who, you know, does that. I distinctly, I distinctly remember my dad giving me money to buy a round when I first started going to the pub and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Especially if I was with his friends, it would be like yeah yeah it's your turn to buy around here's my money to get for you to go and buy around so well that's well of course yeah and i think of course i mean you can get i mean if you want to get into fine-grained analysis as well of sort of class differences as well i mean it's something i was quite conscious of growing up i thought there was i mean it's partly my hang-up about attitudes towards generosity comes from the fact that i my perception whether it was right or wrong when i was growing up was that people from more sort of traditional working class backgrounds seem to me to have a rather healthy a sort of healthier attitude towards giving and receiving than people from more middle class backgrounds who seem to just be very hung up about it one way or another because my idealized ep thompson-esque account would be that well people from a kind of working class tradition have a basic culture of solidarity and egalitarianism and sharing being necessary and reciprocity being necessary to collective survival Whereas the middle class tradition is much more bound up partly with puritanical notions of, of austerity being the virtue more than generosity and partly around competitive competition for status as well. So it just seemed to be generally much more kind of neurotic and people from from much more traditionally working class families seem to have this 
very different set of attitudes to giving roots, which in some ways, you know, it, it produced phenomena like, you know, the family saving all their money for the big Christmas splurge every year and things like that that were quite different from a more middle-class attitude where you're sort of trying to constantly raise the standard of everyday life, like more than you're trying to save up for these ritualized moments of excess. But I did have this quite intuitive sense that I now think I have successfully theorized that, that, that these middle-class attitudes were, were quite unhealthy. That The whole E.P. Thompson thing, actually, that, that opens up a, a way of thinking about gift giving and reciprocation I hadn't thought of before this moment. So E.P. Thompson makes this distinction between like a moral economy and a, and a market economy. And a moral economy is based on this sort of idea of customary expectations. You know, it's the customary expectation is that people will behave in this sort of way and a market economy can come along, really disrupt that. So he, the way he got at that was to think about early forms of things such as food riots, et cetera, where people would like raid the, the miller's house and sell the flour that they'd taken from the from the windmill or whatever. They'd sell it at, at what they thought was the moral price rather than the market price because the market price had gone up. As you could sort of see how gift giving could fit into that conception of a of a moral economy, which is in some sort of tension with a market economy, even though they overlap. Well, it's a timely observation because the question of price controls as a potential way of dealing with the cost of living crisis has come back on the political agenda and it's always worth keeping in mind under those circumstances that to some extent the idea of price controls is one is the thing that marks the boundary between the the pre-capitalist and the capitalist economy the thing which defines the emergence of capitalism as such is the move away towards the idea that the market has to set the price for whether it's for labor or for, for consumer goods Indeed, Thompson, but al- and also many cohorts of anthropologists, many historians and sociologists have pointed out that most cultures or societies have been conscious of the idea that you might allow the market to set prices and have regarded that as a practice which would in- obviously lead to various kinds of social pathology if you did it and have not done, have chosen not to do it and have authorised themselves not to do it on the basis of some notion of you know, Christian morality or traditional custom or customs of, of hospitality or whatever. But politically for us now, though, as well, is that price controls is a is a big ask. Like the minute you start talking about price controls, capitalists panic because it is like built into the DNA of capitalism to be resistant to the idea of controlling price, of the community controlling prices in any way. But but we actually do have price. We have a price control on energy at the moment. Yeah. Inadequate and only for six months. And yeah, it's very much back in back in vogue, basically. Part, partly because you know we're in this very weird stage where where we've had very very low inflation, really historically very unusually low interest rates and inflation for a long long time, and so we've had very very low wages. And all of a sudden, we're running into this period of high inflation, which would probably continue. I think not not as high, but will will continue in some form. I.e., we're out of the era of low interest rates and low low inflation. Partly to do with climate changes, so these sorts of things. So that's why this this price controls and these sorts of things are really up on the agenda. And they could have, you know, they do have the potential to open up space in which even more radical things can emerge. While you were speaking, I was just thinking, but interestingly, the way that that price control has been formulated is to make sure that it doesn't look like the government is giving a gift, back to our topic, to 
you know, individual households because they're effectively subsidizing energy companies. Yeah, that's where the, that's the direction of the gift. Yeah. <laughs> also, they're not just saying to price to energy companies, you cannot charge more than X. Exactly. They're, sub- they're subsidizing it. Mm. That's not price control. I've got to, I'm going to pick you up on that, Kia. That's not price controls. They've, they have refused to, to impose price controls. Instead, they've subsidized. They've introduced a subsidy, which is, unless I've misunderstood what they're doing, in which case, correct me. But the re- the whole point, the whole reason why they've introduced an incredibly, a cripplingly expensive subsidy rather than introduce price controls is because of this fundamental prohibition on, on controlling prices. It, let's be clear for the listeners, a price control is not a, a price control is when the government just says to the supplier, you cannot charge more than X for this product. Okay, yeah. You can't. It's not like we'll give you an extra tenner. Let's say you can cut the price to the consumer by a tenner. That's not a price control. That's a subsidy. Yeah, it is. the effect on a consumer is as a, as a price control, and it is incredibly expensive to do it that way because it's around energy from fossil fuels, basically, from primarily gas in the UK. Even a price control would also be really, really expensive for the government, basically, or it would cause a huge, huge amount of collapse amongst um, energy providers and these sorts of things. But yeah, so it is, it's, it's in effect, it's a price control on the consumer, for the from the supplier side, it's a subsidy, but the most important thing was they were pushed into it or pushed into price control or or an energy subsidy on this sort of scale by the threat of an on payment campaign, an on payment of energy bills campaign. And we know that because the energy companies went to the government, did a presentation, and said, "If don't pay, don't pay UK." The ones who were organising this non-payment campaign. So this was back in the summer. They went and said, you know, if you don't do something now, basically the whole energy supply industry will be out of business. Like it's going to cause companies to collapse if they if if for that number of people don't pay. So it's it's a complicated sort of energy energy cap. I think you could put it in the sort of right realm of energy caps. But of course, the only interesting thing about them is like, what is the political effect on, on whom? Do you know what I mean? I could put it that way. But it, yeah, so it is interesting that the gift is definitely going to, the subsidy is going to the energy companies, basically. Yeah, they're the ones They're the ones getting the gift. They're the ones getting the present. Politically, the government needs to not be seen to give money directly to citizens according to its own ideological framework. Well, that's what furlough was. Yeah, I don't think that's true. I think it has to be, it, it would rather not be seen to be that, I agree, but I'm going to keep maintaining it would It would still rather do that than be seen to tell, simply to tell companies you must limit your profits by X amount. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, another song we could play, which is also about wanting to be able to give the beloved person something. Unsurprisingly, this is another one from the mid-70s, Patti Smith, Free Money. So let's get on to thinking about some of this history of think of theorizing that the idea of the gift and the social function of the gift and the very abstract phenomenological concept of the gift. The study of gift economies is sort of really foundational to anthropology, isn't it? I think you know more about Malinowski than I do, so maybe you should talk about that. 
I hope you know very little about Malinowski. In that case, I, I know slightly more than you. Is Malinowski <laughs> before Mouse or after Mouse? Yeah, so Mal- yeah, he's before Mouse. And and like so 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 the, the really really big figure in this is Marcel Mauss and his like nineteen twenty five essay really, the gift and he, that is a response to like this Malin Malin Malinowski. Malinowski, his study of like the cooler ring. So this is sort of like in, in, in the Pacific, the fundamental observation of this is that like people seem to be going on boats, going on hazardous journeys across huge distances in order to give what looked like very minor gifts to people. In, in other parts of that of the world, and that, and that seems to be in a in a big ring. And in fact, particular items would would circulate. You know, so the person who got that gift, or the the society, it turns out, really that got that gift, would then pass it on, and the, the gift would go round and round. It's like, well, why would you do that? Why would you take those sorts of risks? But what Malinowski's sort of solution to that was was that like what what looks like a, this selfless gift is actually behind that is some sort of self interest because you're setting up relationships of obligation you're going to get something back etc and so like um when mouth does his essay the gift you know it's his answer is look it's not like that you can't really make sense of that you know if you when we say like behind the gift is self-interest because of this this thing of reciprocation we're just sort of like we're not getting outside our frame the frame of resonance as our society we're reading different forms of societies through a sort of market logic and in fact that doesn't really make sense because in these sorts of societies it's not an individual it's the collective that's that are exchanging gifts and you know they don't really make sense to think about sort of self-interest or an individual in the way that we sort of understand them do you know what i mean so what's what's happening is you're they're undertaking these these journeys in order to secure and to maintain these bonds of these social bonds within this sort of ring etc etc and so basically saying look this is not some sort of self-interested manipulation uh, of the gift. In these societies, the whole of society is basically a whole network of gift-giving, bonds of obligation, and reciprocation, etc. And the worst thing that could ever happen would be that a gift would be fully reciprocated because then the bonds are broken and you have no social bonds between these different groups. You know, And, and all sorts of things could emerge out of that, including war, do you know what I mean? That's a sort of cycle, I think, between Malinowski and 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 Maus, That sort of idea. So it sets up this this whole field of study about you. Know, what, what's going on with these? You know, that um, c- can we think about how that relates to our own gift giving, in which we don't want to fully reciprocate because we want to keep this relationship of gift giving going and that sort of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all. That's all right. Maus is following his uncle Emil Durkheim. For whom the the big one of the big questions of sociology and social theory is is how is solidarity possible? Of course, that's partly because he's I would say he's responding to the the dissolution of bonds of solidarity under conditions of industrializing market society. What year are we? Well, Durkheim Durkheim is like late nineteenth century, and then yeah. Maus is early twentieth century. Yeah, and his famous essay about on the gift is yeah mid twenties. My, I guess my reading of Mouse is always influenced by the fact that you know I only I came to Mouse through Derrida, Jacques Derrida writing about Mouse, and so this is sort of deconstructed reading and this sense that Mouse can never quite really resolve the tension between whether the gift is a sort of commodity that's perpetually circulating in, in relations of exchange or whether it's something which absolutely it, the whole point of it is it's not a commodity that yeah you, know, you give it and the person keeps it. 
kind of like we were talking about earlier and it occupies a different sort of economy and it's a different sort of object but all these people are observing something about the way in which relationships of exchange are, are fundamental to building certain kinds of social bonds especially between groups that don't necessarily have face-to-face relationships with each other part of what what mouse is sort of getting at with this is or what part of what he's trying to undo and undo is not just like malinowski's sort of analysis of the cooler ring he's trying to undo the sort of origin myths of capitalism or perhaps the origin myths of of economics sort of classical economics and so the, the origin myth of that is you have individuals who produce stuff they produce too much of something but they don't produce everything so that then they'll go and barter perhaps one chicken for um some milk or something like that and of course bartering like that's a bit different hang on i've only, i've got one chicken but i don't want all of that milk so we, we need so that basically then you produce money or something to to solve that inconvenience and then everything else emerges from that you know other other sorts of you know banks credit default swaps derivatives all emerge from this addressing this problem of barter uh, and that so what what anthropologists can do is say well look there's not really any evidence that societies based on barter have ever existed and in fact what you look when you look around you see relationships based on gifting and like the, the, the sort of social obligations of gifting etc do seem to be everywhere and those are not relationships between individuals in in these anthropological terms, they're, they're relationships between groups of people, basically. So it sort of undoes that that origin origin myth, basically. And so you'd have to look elsewhere for for where money emerges from, and like basically, you know, the the understanding is money emerges it's from from the need to pay taxes. So states create money uh, in order for, so that people can pay taxes to them, and so that really disrupts a sort of like the ideology of classical economics. You'd put it that way. Yes. Yeah. Another sort of fundamental level it's getting away from the idea the classically bourgeois idea that it's trade that produces social relations for the classical bourgeois economists you know, trade comes first like truck and trade truck, bar- truck, truck barter, barter and trade and, yeah are these his, his spontaneous human activities and then social relations are built on them. Social relations I- emerge organically from them. And you can't ever really interfere with them because they are the fundamental processes which make sociality itself possible. Not just society, but sociality, just like being social. And the point about a lot of this anthropology of indigenous societies is, the, is to point out that, that that description just doesn't seem to apply. That social, There are all kinds of things which enable sociality other than truck barter and trade and that truck barter and trade is sort of comes quite late and is sort of built upon these already existing relationships of which are relationships of reciprocity but which don't make any sense if you try to understand them in terms of a kind of logic of transaction. Yeah and so what a part of what what Mouse is saying is you know like um, what's unusual about our society is that we have we try to create a, a sphere called economics, which we pretend is outside of the rest of social relationships, sort of autonomous from it, and you know something we don't have to have to think about in terms of the social relations that it produces. We talked about this sort of really early thing of like this reification. You talked about it earlier, Gem, about commodity fetishism. You know, this idea that the commodities are these things that get exchanged, but like behind that, what's important is the social relations it produces and the you know the historically specific social relationships that it produces. And we don't want to look at that if you're a, a capitalist ideologue, because then what you see are relationships that are quite 
unequal, even though they're supposed to be reciprocal. They're based on this this, this real in- inequality, and they're very asymmetrical between you know the worker and the capitalist, for instance. And so part of what 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 Mao's is saying is that look, you know, there, there, this this idea that there's a separate sphere of economy is is really odd and it depends on something like a market something which abstracts which can be abstracted on a money something that can be abstracted from the specific social relations it's embodied in there's all sorts of very weird sort of spiritual elements to, to something like the cooler ring for instance in that the same objects gets take it gets gets passed around so it's not about acquiring that object because you're going to give it on but when you give it on it's a little bit of of you is left in it do you know, perhaps that relates to the idea of gifting that we were talking about earlier, where something really, really personal would would perhaps remind you of that person. You'd want to keep it around, so perhaps you wouldn't want the the, the experience. Although, of course, I've never I've never forgotten Zorbing, and I do always associate <laughs> it with my daughter May, um, and not a happy memory. Um, yeah, so so it's that that sort of idea. It's in some ways, it's a way of like de by concentrating on the on this on this exchange of gifts you de-reifying it and saying well yeah but the important thing is not the gift it's not you having that gift that's not the important thing it's the social relations and the social bonds that that creates then bonds of, of potentially solidarity that the important thing you get rid of the the concentration on the thing the commodity and, and reposition it within social relations yes yeah 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 well look the gift the book the gifts or the essay really but you buy it's book, l'essai sur le don the essay on the gift Right, okay, yeah, yeah. In English, it's just called the gift. <laughs> yeah. I know. Check it. Google it on Amazon now. Um, uh, yeah, so it starts off with a description of this of this practice called potlatch in, in sort of northwest Pacific Native American cultures, sort of pre-Columbian cultures. In a pre-Columbian time, that was it was just a really rich ecosystem in the northwest Pacific, at, around Seattle and above and, and below around that sort of area. And so basically there were societies with a lot of surplus, basically. And the whole idea of potlatches, it's a gift-giving thing, but it's it's got a particular like the expectation is you would always return a gift or reciprocate a gift with something much more valuable. And of course, it doesn't take long to think that that's that's a ruinous cycle because if somebody gives a gift, you have to give more, then they have to give more back. That's a sort of like, you know, it's a it's a feedback loop that goes on and on and on. And so they can be ruinous, basically. And, and, and it leads into things such as traditions in which you basically, instead of giving a gift, you very publicly destroy something very valuable and that somebody else has to destroy something very valuable back again, if you know, if you know what I mean. He starts off as that, as this. It's almost like the most extreme example of gift giving, gift giving, which can be ruinous, socially ruinous, basically. And that's something that's picked up by lots of people. I think the Situationists, uh, the, the the first Situationist magazine was called Potlatcher. Oh, think. really? But like, mm, but, like and, but they're getting that from from Georges Bataille, who is a theorist, uh, somebody cl- close to sort of surrealist circles, uh, a sort of strange sort of activist in France, sort of writing in the 1930s in particular, I think. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Accursed Share, which picks up on this idea of potlatch, links it to things such as human sacrifice and human sacrifices when the way he interprets it, saying like Aztec societies, whatever, you have human sacrifice, where the priest cuts the the heart out of this the sacrificial victim, etc. But how Batai interprets that is that that is that is the destruction of of a valuable item. So like a slave would be very valuable, and in, in those sorts of societies, you're destroying something really really valuable. And from that, he gets particularly in this book, the accursed share, he gets this idea of 
if you want to understand a society, put it this way, if you want to understand a society, you must you you need to think about how it deploys or destroys its surplus. Uh, and so, like Jem talked about it earlier, this idea that what perhaps in some societies, what's going on is that you're destroying a, a surplus to prevent something else happening, to prevent that surplus bit for being used for something else. And so, Castres, what's his P- Pierre, Pierre Castres, Clastres. Clastres. Pierre Clastres is his classic book, um, Society, uh, Society Against the State. He sort of says that the societies who were doing these sorts of practices, what they were doing was they were sensing that there were social possibilities on the horizon. When you move from hunter gathering into things such as growing crops, such as grain, so grain can be stored and it can be moved. It's a form of wealth. It can be stored and moved, and like meat, meat is of no use at all for those sorts of purposes. And so you would have societies which would try to destroy those surpluses to prevent something else occurring. So that could be destroying something in order to ensure that existing society and existing hierarchies remain the same. But his his idea was that they sensed the possibility of a state emerging with a separate class of people, and and they were trying to do away with that that sort of idea. For Bataille, like you know, he he would then go on and sort of think about like he would say, look at the pyramids, like the pyramids is this this gigantic wasting of surplus basically. What's the surplus of the of those societies creating these huge monuments? And he says, you know, you could look at the Palace of Versailles and say the same. In those sorts of societies, ostentatious waste by by those at the top of the hierarchy was a way of destroying surplus and to prevent something else occurring. Do you know what I mean? And so his analysis of capitalism is, you know, capitalism is a very strange version of that because it, you don't have this ostentatious destruction of surplus. Instead, surplus, that's the very definition of capitalism is, you know, it's the surplus that is created through the investment of capitalism is invested back into production or whatever in order to create more surplus. So once again, you get this ruinous sort of almost cancerous growth of surplus. But of course, once again, that's all, in a way, that's just another way of wasting surplus. Basically, because you're constantly investing in order to increase the zeros on an accounting sheet, really, rather than using that surplus to address people's needs. If people's needs get addressed, that's a byproduct of, of, of the real aim of capital, which is just to increase the amount of capital in the world. So in a way, that's like, that is almost like, like destroying surplus, but it has no limit to it, basically. Do you know what I mean? It, there's a cycle that just keeps going on and on and on. And so there are counter tendencies. And so this gets into like Deleuze and Guattari pick up on Bataille and stuff like that and talk about anti-production. There are sort of counter tendencies within capitalism in which surplus is destroyed. And they talk about war as one of those counter tendencies. I think they talk about the advertising industry as well as another sort of one of those, one of those like counter tendencies. But I think the war example makes sense because when you have a depression that emerges because, you know, capital has produced too much, perhaps, and it's not enough, you know, people can't buy what's being produced, these sorts of things. Basically, war, the destruction of capital, is one of the traditional means through which you can get out of a recession and, and restart the, the, the process of capital accumulation. The Trent glorious, 30 glorious years, the post-war settlement, you know, that's, that's something that emerges after this huge destruction of capital in the, in the Second World War. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Those few short words. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, I think, um, I mean, but one of Bataille's ideas as well is general economy, isn't it? The idea that some that you have to understand societies as operating according to a certain economic logic, but it's not necessarily the generalised economic logic that, you know, Adam Smith and the 
the the bourgeois economy to imagine that it operates according to some of these patterns that Keir has been describing. I mean, Bataille is important in the history of social theory because he's one of the people trying to conceptualize the kind of relationship between you know what would later be called a libidinal economy, like the the the, the processes of the psyche and social and economic processes. I mean, arguably, that series of books that he publishes, what was it, is it in the late 30s? The Cozy yeah, Chair and yeah. the others that, I mean, arguably, it's the most, up to that point, I think it's the most ambitious sort of attempt to synthesize things that are coming out of psych- psychoanalytic theory, they're coming out of Marxism, they're coming out of anthropology. Yeah, he's one of those thinkers, I don't, he's not been very well served because in recent decades, because the people who picked him up in during the theory boom of the 80s and 90s tended to be uh, quite dodgy in various ways <laughs> frankly he's the first of the theorists to be read by nick land yeah. as basically a sort of you know a sort of a narco-capitalist nihilist and then other people i mean other people there were people trying to sort of promote bataille and he's i think it's, it's a shame really because he's really interesting he, he's into weird stuff. He's into weird esotericism. The story is he was a member of some secret society that wanted to practice human sacrifice as part of some... Asafal. Yeah, Asafal, and they all, he and loads of the others all volunteered to be the sacrificial victim, but none of them would do the sacrifice. Like, none of them were willing to wield the knife. Yeah. So, and he was... He's sort of sometimes remembered as having bit, you know, he fell out with Andre Breton, who was the leader of the Surrealists, and and it was partly a kind of political falling out over Breton's loyalism to the Comintern, uh, you know, the International Communist Party, and um, so it, that's all. That's been in that split has been interpreted in multiple ways. And I feel like I'm not an expert enough to judge it, but yeah, he is. I mean, he's some. I, I mean. The followers of Breton accused Bataille of having fascistic leanings, which they associated with his his leaning towards sort of dark forms of esotericism, which some of the fascists were into. But I think I don't think there's much evidence he did he what he did really. Basically, I, I think that that you know he wasn't a fascist, <laughs> and he didn't have fascist leanings either. I don't think. No, I don't. But think um, I think that was just sectarian slander, really. It might well have been. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about it is he's he's trying to think through utility basically, and that the limitations of of utility. Once again, like he has this idea that like the real problem of of economics is not scarcity. So like basically, economics as we understand it now. It's the science of of how to redistribute, how to distribute scarce resources in the most efficient way. That's how it sells itself. And he says, "Well, it's not the problem. Isn't scarcity? It's excess. It's it's surplus." And he starts with this image of like an excess of solar energy on the earth. Basically, he calls it the solar anus, shitting energy onto the into the universe. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, and and the, the the main problem has been what to do with that surplus, what to do with the excess. You know, how do you do it and so he sort of quite he sets up all these ideas such as like gift giving as a way perhaps a form of like homeostasis do you know what i mean you destroy the surplus in order to keep things the same which is what we were talking about earlier but what he's really he's not particularly interested in that what he's really interested in at his most sort of radical end is like how you can how to create change out of that how that surplus could be could be used in order to facilitate something different a different form of society and he's sort of quite interested particularly at certain points as like as revolutions, as one of these sorts of, um, you know, this huge destruction of surplus through destroying the ruling class, basically, yeah. that sort of I- I- idea. 
but like it sets up this really interesting thing about utility in a sort of limited for we've got a very limited sense of what utility is of what use is what use yeah our, our form of what utility is we have very limited forms of that now and it's not the general form of utility it's something bigger than that and so he's quite interested in ways in which you know we should waste waste resources in order to discover new things perhaps was one way to one way to put it so basically that relates to that graeber article from ages ago i think it was called where's my jetpack or something where he argues that like technological development has slowed down and one of the reasons it's slowed down is because universities and places where knowledge is produced has been swept by this very limited form of utilitarianism i the one form of measure that was trying to be introduced into universities now is what's the average earnings of a graduate in two years time who's done this degree basically of course that's going to eliminate all sorts of things from which the new emerges and so graeber says look you know universities used to be this place where the weirdos could go and be you know let them get or give them a little bit of resources let them get on with things and and they won't be focused on what's the most useful thing now they but that's where you know the great discoveries of science come from etc 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 so there's that weird thing between non-utility and utility and unemployed negativity talks about this you know anyway let, i i don't want to get into unemployed negativity don't bring things down but I is a, a sort of predecessor and is an influence on that generation of philosophers who have become really active in France in the 60s and 70s. And uh, among them, Jacques Derrida, who is quite influenced by Bataille at the point where he, he himself is occasionally writing about the idea of a general economy. He tries to bring that, he tries to do a sort of post Bataille reading of Hegel and things like that, and sometimes think about hints at the implications might be for Marxian economics and what have you. And then... Derrida in the 80s um, writes a series of uh, essays which get translated into English in mostly in the early 90s, I think, which are explicitly around this concept of the gift. So there's a couple of books. There's a book translated in English as Given Time and another one called The Gift of Death. And it, the starting point for all this really is his encounter with the thought of people like Maus. I'm not going to get into technicalities around Derrida's philosophy, but... One of the really interesting and thought-provoking questions he raises is this tension between the idea of the gift as the thing which is given without the expectation of reciprocity. And on the other hand, the fact that social reality seems to be that gifts are always in sort of relations of exchange. I mean, to some extent, part of his point is that Mouse isn't entirely successful. Part of his argument in claiming to have completely detached the gift conceptually from any notion of reciprocity, any system of exchange. Because although Maus might be right, the simplistic account of the bourgeois economists, according to which, as we said before, you know, trade relations are kind of the kind of basic for, basis of all social relations. It, it, it's also the case that Maus does show that there's, there is this sense in which gifts are sort of in it's they sort of circulate and they sort of like, like like Malinowski says and they sort of you know they do have a sort of social function and it is a function which has to do with ideas of reciprocity even if it's not simply transactional it's not like you give me this I give you that it's something more complicated than that and so then the question becomes, well, what would it mean to give a gift? Like, what would a gift be that is completely outside of any relation to reciprocity and transaction? And to think about that, you you partly have to think about things like the Abrahamic traditions, like Jewish and Christian traditions, for example. I don't know about how Islam treats this issue, within which 
the ideal of gift giving, the ideal of charity is that it has to, is that for it really to have maximum spiritual value, it has to be completely devoid of any uh, possibility of, of allowing the giver to derive any kind of real social benefit from it. You know, there's that phrase people will have heard of like, from the Bible, that the left hand shouldn't know what the right hand is doing. And what that refers to, that's a passage where they're talking about what it means to give charity in a properly moral way. And it should be that you're, the ideal should be that you, you shouldn't even remember that you gave that charity. You shouldn't, there should be no conception that the person you gave it to owes you anything. They shouldn't know who you are. So they shouldn't be able to feel any sense of obligation to you. And of course, that is the origin of the, that's partly the origin of the Santa myth. I mean, Santa Claus is Saint Nicholas. And the story of Saint Nicholas from which the Santa myth derives is that Saint Nicholas was a bishop who, they left gifts for poor girls who didn't have money for their dowries and did so anonymously so that nobody would know where it had come from, so they wouldn't feel any sense of obligation or indebtedness towards him. Well, that's interesting, actually, yeah. So there's this Christian idea. You know, it's something that can be said about the, uh, the Christ, to some extent, the Jewish, and especially the Christian tradition, is that there is this tendency to want to to break with like older ideas of, of reciprocity, whether it's in, in, in around the ideas of justice, like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, or whether it's around the idea that you have a covenant with God, like you, you've done a deal. I mean, the, the, the Abrahamic idea is that you've done a deal with God. So uh, you're going to follow these rules and do these things for God, and God is going to do certain things for you, going to look after you. And then what kind of em- what emerges with Christianity is this idea that, well, God is so, like, incredibly, is so su- superior to human beings in terms of power that you couldn't possibly really give him anything. Therefore, grace and salvation have to be conceptualized as things which are given completely freely by god and that are received completely freely and that this is partly why within christian theology and christian ethics like going back to saint paul and saint augustine it's really difficult the whole idea that actually uh, you get rewarded for being good by going to heaven is really problematic like they 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 basically were always trying to get away from that idea because even though it seems like a, it's a natural idea to people it doesn't really fit with the christian metaphysics according to which well you couldn't possibly be good enough like to earn a place in heaven so you're just going to be given it by god as and you just have to recognize that you're just being given it as a sign of god of god's infinite love and mercy and then that get that idea gets picked up by for example, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, who's another big influence on Derrida, who's a sort of Jewish, sort of Jewish existentialist philosopher of the mid twentieth century, and Levinas also is you know famously picks up on these ideas of debt and indebtedness. But his idea is that well, actually, you know, the debt which we owe to the other, which might be God, or it might just be every other person in the world, or it might be a particular other person, is infinite. So there is a sense of debt and obligation and reciprocity, but it's incalculable. And the, as soon as you start to try to calculate it, you get into this realm of, you know, this bourgeois realm of transactionality and selfishness. And the only way to escape those things, the only way to be truly ethical, which is Levinas's preoccupation, is to accept that there, there can't be any real, there is no limit to what we all owe each other. There is no limit to the hospitality we owe to the stranger. There's no limit to the our debts to each other and, and to the world and arguably to God. And I think that is all really interesting. I think it, because it, those questions we were asking right at the start, just really basic questions like what does it mean to give a gift? What does it mean to give something that somebody would really want? And what does it, you know, what do you get from it? You know, they are these really persistent questions in the in these philosophical traditions, and there is a certain ideal of complete selflessness according to which you would give 
and you absolutely would not expect to receive and you you put yourself in a position where you cannot receive anything for it i think that is really interesting it's it's quite hard to think through that how that would fit with a a Gilbert Williams version of interest, but perhaps that's for another. That's for another episode. <laughs> but as you were speaking, Jeremy, it made me think because we were talking about you know Abrahamic religions. It made me think about offerings and whether offerings actually sit in a different class because for religions or you know traditions where you offer, you you give offerings to the gods, that is quite different to a gift in some ways. I suppose that's a bit like sacrifice, isn't it? A sacrifice to the gods. The destruction, of yeah, something. being different to then give, yeah, than the role of a gift in in, in that situation. Well, I mean, it depends. It depends what tradition you're talking. I mean, the, the I mean, the classic pre-monotheistic traditions of sacrifice, mostly, you know, it was mostly did have a pretty um a sort of transactional ideal in in some sense. I mean, it's something that philosophers were worrying about like hundreds of years before Jesus, saying, "Well, why would the gods even care? Why do the gods care if you like burn a, a, a bloody chicken for them? They're the gods." <laughs> yeah, but it is. It, yeah, it definitely. Of course, it is related to sacrifice and the idea. But is it like what, what about? I'm thinking about things like when you go to temples and you put, you know, offerings for, hmm. for, for you know, the monkeys or the animal, and you know, I'm thinking about that sort of stuff because it's not for the animals; it's for the gods. Well, it de- it depends. If you talk to, I mean, today, if you talk to people who are active in those traditions, they'll they'll often say. Well, actually, it's for you. It's because the the act of giving, just the gesture of giving, is good. Like it opens you out in some way, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. a, because because indeed, as as like Saint Paul or Saint Augustine would say, that like God the gods can't really want anything from you. You know, they're not. It's an anti neurosis action. I see that because it's taking your the focus away from yourself and your own problems and your own needs and making you think about others, which is by definition anti neurotic. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and it also touches on this theme, which we've I've mentioned before already. But this idea, of, the idea of generosity, and the idea of the gift and generosity, I think that's something we haven't really talked about this because I think this is important. One of the things I sort of struggle with as a parent is to communicate to my kids the idea that I'm really big on generosity for reasons I've already talked about. Like I've sometimes said to them that the most important things are to be brave, kind, and generous. Those are the three important virtues for a a secular socialist. Be brave, be kind, be generous. And what it means to be generous is not to just give, is not to give people something that is just really convenient to you to give them that you don't even want to keep. That's not generosity. There's a sense it's only generosity if there's some degree of inconvenience to you, like you have deprived yourself of something. That's very difficult to practice, though. I mean, very few people give gifts, for example, that they can't really easily afford. And I'm not saying people should, or I'm not saying people should feel bad about that. But I think there's something in that and the idea of the thoughtful gift. There's something in the idea that, well, even if we don't live in a society where it's feasible for people to give people presents that it's difficult for them to afford and nobody expects to do, at least you've you've genuinely expended something. Yeah, You've expended something by putting in the thought and the effort. And that does relate to that Bataille, those Bataillean ideas. I mean, Bataille is partly interested in the idea of expenditure. He's interested in this idea of what does it mean to actually kind of give up something, like to no longer have something that you could have used otherwise. I think part of the intuition people have when they recoil from like what people call the commercialization of Christmas or the kind of routinization of gift giving is this idea that gift giving has devolved into a set of social routines which are transactional 
and which don't but don't involve actual actual expenditure they don't involve the giver like losing anything at all by virtue of the the other person getting something and and that is something it is built into the idea of sacrifice it is built into the idea of offering it's built into all of these traditions this idea that well for it to be meaningful like it has to cost you something even if it's something that it's not painful to, to cost you it still ha- there has to be some sense of but that's i mean that's true but it's, it's it's only true necessarily within a very technical understanding of what cost is so for example if you are baking some cookies as a present like of course it's cost you time and it's cost you effort right so by that definition i understand what you mean yeah but, exactly but that but that's what you mean right rather yeah, than exactly cost you mean, in yeah. terms of a debilitating sense of cost Sure, but I think it's. I think I think one reason those things have taken that, like making something for someone now, does take on a particular significance is because under advanced capitalism, the one commodity that is scarce for absolutely everybody is time. It's time. Time is scarce for everybody. Like you can be a billionaire, and you, and it was still you know it, you you are still conscious that you're mortal. You are a finite being, you know, being for death, as Heidegger would say, and you know, given unto death, and therefore giving up your your time is is something that is irreplaceable is always every moment of time from that perspective is irreplaceable i think that's partly why that is such a powerful idea and to some extent it's a sort of leveling idea for people time is a cost even if it's pleasurable you're not getting that time back i can't quite believe we haven't played this before though according to my records we haven't double exposure love is free a classic sal soul disco record from the mid 70s and the theme of the lyric is one of the greatest pop lyrics ever really is or is just is about you know the idea of free of love as a freely given gift which is not transactional is not uh, doesn't cost anything it won't cost you one thin dime baby I mean, so so one thing that's in the news at the moment is is this idea of effective altruism, and so it's like this ideology that comes out of utilitarianism a little bit, but it's been really, really taken on by oligarchs, basically. And I'm going to really, really gloss it, but like you know, the basic idea is the point of life would be, you know, you should try and make as much money as possible for basically whatever means whatever means possible in order for you to then be able to give it away for the benefit of humanity. It's in the news at the moment, partly because we live in, a, in, in an era of oligarchs and oligarchs have to give meaning to these huge, huge, historically unprecedented amounts of wealth they're accumulating that they can't possibly spend. So how do you give meaning to that? They can't spend it on themselves, particularly. So the idea is you give it away, you know, Bill Gates giving away his money for the Gates Foundation, etc. And so effective altruism is, a, is something very attractive to the oligarchs, I, I, I imagine. Uh, but just this recently, there's been a collapse in, in in the crypto economy. The whole, the wider crypto economy, cryptocurrency economy, is um, is in a really long, long period of decline. And just recently, uh, uh, one of the main cryptocurrency exchanges called FTX collapsed in a huge orgy of fraud. It looks like fraud and incompetence. The owner of FTX, this exchange, Sam Bankman Fried, which is a perfect name for somebody also known as Sam Bank Bank Run Fraud, um, 
he was really into effective uh, altruism. This was his, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all this so I can give it away at a later date. Now the fraud is out the way, you know, he's just revealed that that was, he give, he's given interviews in which he said, you know, all of that effective altruism stuff, that was just a nice moral story. That was part of the grift, basically. The grift to get people to, to invest in this, in, in crypto, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but I think is interesting about that is that, you know, we could see this gift giving by the oligarchs as the contemporary form of destruction of surplus, right? This is the way in which, and there are societies, uh, meaning is created around these huge, huge, huge collections of wealth because we're going to we're going to destroy it by giving it away. So there may be you know, elements of generous, genuine generosity in that. Of course, the inequalities mean that instead of democratically deciding how we deploy our surpluses, that is given over to extremely wealthy people, uh, for instance. But the whole crypto, in a way, the whole cryptocurrency economy is basically just a distraction of surplus. Because you know, in order to create cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, etc., you 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 create these huge amounts of of, of processing power, giving it um, you know using it massive amounts of energy in order to solve pointless sums. That's how you mine Bitcoins, basically. So all of it looks like just this this you know this insane destruction, insane excess destruction of the surpluses that we need to address society's problems. And on that today's sermon (laughs) i I think we should end by uh, a little admission is that we're having the annual acfm agm in a couple of weeks at jem's house where jem is cooking us all christmas dinner we're going to test out his uh, generosity (laughs) (laughs) um uh, i shall be bringing uh, some um some uh, eggy eggnoggy type drink Um, i think nadia is is, bringing a nut roast She's created, built, yep, bringing a net roast that her, she has expended her, her own precious time of life to to um, to cook. Well, that's all I want for Christmas is you guys. Oh. <laughs> well, that, that is something I can um, I can give. Um, although I will also be bringing an, an eggnoggy drink. <laughs> it sounds disturbing. An eggnoggy drink. So Do you mean it sounds sincere? It sounds so sinister. Wrong. Do you mean eggnog? <laughs> Like what an eggnog! It sounds like one well, of those subs, one of those things like sh- non non champagne, like white sparkling, <laughs> like yeah, just vegan eggnog. <laughs> it comes in powdered form. <laughs> yes. This is so yeah. This is, it's not in, oh, it's not indulgent if it's eggnog like. <laughs> <laughs> if you mean it's vegan friendly, that sounds nicer. So vegan- well, it's definitely not going to be that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Perhaps we could also go out on a solemn note with one of the what a wonderful hymn, <laughs> uh, wonderful hymn which will fill us with Christmas spirit. Um, the best version of that hymn, the most meaningful, is by the punk band The Dickies. This is Silent Night by The Dickies. Oh yes, yeah, I forgot to say Silent Night. <laughs> 